Well, thank you very much, James, and thank you very much, everybody, for making the very long trek all the way across from the tent um, to the main building. At least we have very unseasonably nice New Horizon weather for you to enjoy the little dander across, uh, but you're very welcome. In TLT9, the last time that I was in here, I sat where you sit now, when I was a student. So if I tell you that I graduated in 1992, that means for those at the back that uh, I'm going to sound so old, I started university in 1998 and I sat in here with the guys at the front and back in those days we didn't have any screens like this, oh no. What was the technology? Overhead. The overhead projector, yes, and out would come the overhead projector transparency sheets and the lecturer would lecture and there were no laptops or anything like that, it was all written out by hand. So it is wonderful to be here, but very, very bizarre for me to be standing down at this point, kind of <coughs> far too many years later than I care to count. But it's great to have you along today. Um, I wonder what your expectations are about this seminar. Whenever I was asked to do it uh, a number of months ago, I was very excited for the opportunity, but it was a complete blank sheet of paper for me because in many ways, um, I kind of think that this whole notion of how faith and photography kind of overlap and intersect is not something that I would have necessarily heard a lot of information about. I'm just going to turn these lights down a wee bit, I think. Yeah, I'll do better. You can still see me okay? Uh, whenever you think about the various aspects of life that we get involved in, um, there seems to me that there's been a whole bunch of thinking done about some aspects of them. So if you think about Christians in the business world, there are organizations that meet together for Christians to get Christians to think about what it means to live out your faith in that context. Even into the hobby world, Christians in sports, there are contexts again where that kind of thing has been explored where um, Christians have a chance to think about what it means to stand up for their faith as they're practicing that hobby. But what about Christianity and photography? Um, whenever I was talking about this to a friend of mine, uh, who, who is, he loves to play the role of the grumpy old man, he said, see those Christi Christianity and talks? They all kind of say the same thing, don't they? Because it all comes down to saying the same kind of thing in a different context. Well, I kind of hope that he's wrong for your sake so that you hear something fresh today. And what I've tried to do in, in my preparation with this is to, to get us to think and give us an opportunity to think um, this morning about what it actually means to, to, to reflect on what it involves being a Christian in the practice of photography. So I'm presuming that a number of you here are photographers. Uh, but because this is landscape photography, um, even if you're not a photographer, if you're a hiker, if you like to get out um, on the beaches around here and just enjoy creation, hopefully there'll be something for you in there as well. But the primary focus of this is to consider a little bit about what that overlap is. Does the Bible have anything to say to those of us who engage in photography? And I think it does. And I'm hoping to give you a few pointers on that on the way through. Part of the reason why I think this is worthwhile doing is because photography has become an increasingly popular hobby. Uh, more and more people are getting involved in it, more and more people are doing it. Uh, and I think that it's going to just continue to grow and expand. Um, so, you know, those of us who are involved in this already now who do photography will probably know that. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing a hobby expanding. And I think it's good for us to take a few moments like we're doing this morning just to reflect and think, right, what does it mean for those of us who identify as Christians as we're involved in that whole context? 
So, as James already said, when I was uh, preparing about this, I kind of thought I would hang everything around the concept of the aesthetic. Uh, aesthetics, as we use the term now, of course, is all about the appreciation of beauty, which I think in terms of how we try to kind of vision landscape photography is the sense of what we're trying to do, capture something of the beauty that's out there. But the original words, the original Greek word of aesthetics actually comes from a context that's slightly broader than just beauty, and it means perception by the senses, to sense things, to perceive, to see things, which struck me as being a very, very interesting concept because that's at the essence, the heart of all True photography, whatever the, the genre, whether it's landscape or portrait or whatever, it's vision. It starts with noticing. And as a photographer, one of the first things that you do is to start to train your eye to see things. So with that little kind of background to it, I'm going to break the talk into three main sections. Uh, I do have Presbyterian roots, so they're coming through here, although I do apologize they don't all start with the same letter. But we're going to look at just experiencing the aesthetic. Uh, and there'll be a few photography tips in there as well, because I hope to send you away with one or two of those. Then we're going to go on to look at worshipping through the aesthetic. Uh, what does it mean not just to experience it, but to experience God through it? And then finally, our last little section will be all about how we can use this as a kind of an apologetics thing, uh, particularly in the context of the fact that if you're involved in photography, you're probably going to be interacting with non-Christians who are fellow photographers. Um, what does it mean to be able to share the gospel in that context? What are the opportunities for that? But we begin, as I say, with experiencing the aesthetic. We, our wee country isn't too bad now, is it? Every single one of those photographs taken in Northern Ireland. Um, experiencing the aesthetic... To be in those moments, to have the opportunity to see not only the best of Northern Ireland, but when the best of Northern Ireland is looking as best, is just an absolutely wonderful experience. It's, it's really why it uh, drives me to head out at all sort of ridiculous times of the morning or night to do this kind of thing. But what I want to do, as I said, in this first little section is just to think a little bit about what a, a landscape photographer does whenever he or she is out doing this kind of thing. And to start with my favourite quotation about landscape photography, it's this. A snapshot says, this is what you would have seen if you had been there. A photograph says, this is what you wouldn't have noticed, even if you were standing right beside me. And I love that because it encapsulates for me the essence of the vision that lies behind all good photography. It's noticing those things that are moving you, that are, are uh, having an emotional reaction with you, and then trying to compose and to shoot that in such a way as you can communicate that to somebody else. So, for example... Um, you could go down to the Mourns, uh, overlooking Bancrum Reservoir on a beautiful, crisp, uh, late winter's afternoon where the wind is blowing, the sun is out, and the remnants of the snow are sprinkled on the top of uh, Sleep Binion, or sorry, Sleep Burner. Uh, and that's what the view looked like. But that wasn't the photograph that I took. That was the photograph that I took. Trying to notice those details, to notice the foreground, to notice the elements that I could kind of oh, arrange together in such a way as to try and, and capture something more than just simply uh, this is what you would have seen if you had been there. So that's what photography begins with. It's that sense of vision. So our job as uh, photographers, first and foremost, is to notice. 
Okay, so here we go. Here's a very, very quick whistle-stop tour through some of the things that I try to notice when I'm a photographer, right? So these are the photography tips. So we'll, we will cover them, but we'll try and get through them reasonably quickly to give us a chance to think about the other stuff, that, why we're here. Many of these, of course, you'll have heard of before. The rule of thirds. Um, all says don't put your main subject right in the center. The reason why that works is because what you're trying to do is create a balance, you're trying to create a tension, you're trying to create a dynamism within your photograph so that the eye doesn't just go onto one part of the photograph and stay there. You want the eye to move around. So for example, this one, a trassy track, the eyes, hopefully, <laughs> if I've done my job properly, drawn in through the waterfall and then it leads you through to some of the other things in the background. This one as well, um, over here towards the sunset, but what I was trying to do was to lead through the light around here uh, so that the eye moves around so that there's a dynamic within the shot. This one as well, um, down to Dunluce. So the castle here with this rock in the foreground with these elements that kind of create this, hopefully, as I've done my job, uh, this tension or this dynamism where your eye moves between those different elements. And you're creating a bit of an energy in your photograph through doing that. Another way you can do that is through the use of depth and scale by the use of foreground. Um, down in Murloc, looking up at the Mourne Mountains, those little patches of uh, the sand caught my eye. And the, just the difference in the terms of the scale between these tiny little hunts of sand and the majesty of the mountains, again, dusted in snow and backlit behind, was what caught my eye with that one. Uh, down at Portrush, beautiful sunset. Um, this was at West Bay. Uh, most of the people that were there that day were taking photographs. They stayed up. On the promenade, out came the phones and took the photographs. I spotted those down in the beach, ran down under the beach, and again, just tried to create something in there of that interest in the foreground. You're also noticing things like the corners of your photographs, you know, trying not to cut things off, uh, trying to organize things so that the lines lead in to the main subject, uh, trying to avoid clutter in the foreground. Um, you can use stuff like this for framing. Um, the leaves here, the autumn leaves, kind of caught my eye. and I thought that would make quite a nice little framing of those photographs. Then you've got things like leading lines. This is over in Glencoe. Um, what I was trying to do here was the line leading up through here all the way up there. That was an absolutely minging day. It did not stop raining the entire day. I thought to myself, I fancy those waterfalls up there. In the rain, pouring rain, I got out of the car all the way up there, took about 45 minutes to get up, got back to the car afterwards, completely soaked. I even managed to lose my pair of glasses, up, took them off, set them down there somewhere, and they're, they're probably still on the hillside in Glencoe to this day. Got back down to the car, looked at them again, thought, I like the first one, the two best. But the experience was great, and <laughs> it gives you a great little story. Uh, but the line kind of leading up um, as you go through, this is another one in Glencoe, a photograph that I'd wanted to take for a while, um, of that kind of curve of the light, um, kind of set beside this slightly more random silver of the river going through there. Uh, and this is another attempt to kind of use those lines up at the Causeway coasts. Uh, again, trying to use the line of the foreground to kind of lead things in and lead the eye. So whenever I talk about the art uh, of a photographer being, or the essence of a photographer being observation first, these are some of the kinds of things that I'm uh, alluding to. Uh, as a photographer, when we go out into the landscape, we begin 
to notice. And that is our first job. But it's not just seeing. It's also experiencing. Because you can learn the rules of photography and still produce really, really boring and dull photographs. Because photography is not just about following formula. Photography is, at its essence, about communicating something of the experience. Uh, My eldest daughter is currently learning how to drive. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cue dramatic noise. (laughs) Uh, This is a scary... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everybody's feeling it. Um, This this is a bit of a scary experience for me. Uh, But what I've said to her is, right, what you need to learn is the theory. So I've talked to her about the theory of finding the biting point on the clutch. And she nods as if she's listening to what I have to say, but like I'm her dad, so what do I know? So anyway, she's, she's sitting, listening to me, uh, um, listening to the theory of that, and then I took her out into the car for the first time to let her have a go, and I videoed it. Would you like to see it? No way! No way! I've been so much trouble. That is for only a very small select number of people, but she did all right. But of course, the first moment, we put in a big judder. What just happened, she said. What just happened? And I then said to her, look, that's the other side of things. This is where the experience comes in. Because you can know in theory what you should do. But it's then the experience of actually being able to find that biting point. To find that moment whenever the clutch is engaging. So it's not just seeing. It's also experiencing. And I think this is really important for us as we start to transition to think about what it means to be landscape photographers as Christians. So this time I want to take you not to Northern Ireland, but to a trip that I did recently to the Faroe Islands uh, just last month. Absolutely incredible experience. Now, I'm about to get into a little bit of trouble here because my wife's sitting towards the back, right? And we kind of have this arrangement when I go out and do these kinds of things that I don't really tell her too much about where exactly I go. In the same way, she never tells me how much it costs for her to get her hair done because sometimes ignorance is bliss. So I'm about to confess something here. It might get me into a few awkward conversations afterwards. But can you see those two people up there? Right? Okay. So those were a couple of my mates, and they had gone on ahead. That was the cliff that we were about to head up to, right? Then this is us. Okay. And here's the experience. Lorraine, I do promise, right, the other guys walked to the edge. I did go down on my backside <laughs> purposely, didn't fall. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, the experience of actually standing there um, is absolutely breathtaking. It's one of the lakes that I really look forward to seeing, but to go to that incredible landscape, the like of which you see nothing like that here. And not only did we get to go there, but when we were there, didn't the light do this? Didn't the clouds break and the light come streaming through? You see the little house up there? This gives you a bit of a sense of the scale in the lake. 
and these incredible cliffs. To be in that moment, it's got to be first and foremost about the experience, doesn't it? It can't be first and foremost about, yeah, I've got a little bit of a job to do. Let me think technically about how I'm going to compose this. Um, when you're learning to drive, you think about the biting point. When you've learned to drive, you think about the experience of driving. And it's the same with this. It's moving into that moment of experiencing these things and seeing what they're like. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this to somebody who had spoken to him or written to him to be, uh, get some advice about being a writer. Uh, and he said this. He said the, the writing advice that he would give is not just to be a writer. Don't just write. Go out and live life a little bit. Because if all you do is write, you'll have nothing to write about. And I think it's the same with landscape photography. If you want to get out and do these things, yes, the, the rules can help you to see but you want to transition into what is that experience? What is it that moves me about this? What is it that stirs my emotions about this view whenever I'm standing here looking at something like this? So it's seeing, but not just seeing, it's experiencing. It's not just experiencing, though. It takes it a little bit further. It's being shaped by this experience. If we're going to go to these beautiful places, if we're going to try and capture something of the beauty of these places, surely we need to be transformed by that, surely we need to be shaped to become just that little bit more beautiful through the whole process. Those of us that are involved in any kind of creative endeavor, anything that's, that involves the arts, we don't want to just create beautiful things. We want to become slightly more beautiful, uh, slightly more full as a human being through that whole process. Um, and of course, the Bible talks a lot about that kind of sense of transform, transformation. Philippians 4, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's about going out into those moments first and foremost to experience the wonder, the majesty, the awe of this created world that is around us. Okay, so far so good, but at the moment, I, after this point, I could kind of deliver this to any kind of audience. It doesn't necessarily need to be a Christian audience, because I'm kind of just talking a little bit about mindfulness at the moment. Is there something more that we can say? Is there something more that we can add? Is there something that the gospel can bring to this that allows us to consider a, a little bit more deeply and more fully if we are going to experience this? What should the nature of that experience be? If we're going to be transformed with it, how? What is the nature of the transformation? And this is where I want to bring us into worshipping through the aesthetic. Um, I don't have time to play this song for you, but I would recommend that you check out a song by Rich Mullins called The Colour Green. He starts off like this. He says, And the moon is a sliver of silver, like a shaving that, is f that fell to the floor of a carpenter's shop, and every house has its builder. And I awoke in the house of God, where the windows are mornings and the evenings stretch from the north, from the sky from the north to the south. And on my way to early meeting, I heard the rocks crying out. 
be praised for all your faithfulness, goes into the chorus. But like any true artist, what he is doing is observing the stuff around him and then making that transition in. I love the phrase that he uses there. He awoke in the house of God. He awoke in creation. He awoke in nature. Where the windows are mornings and evenings. Where he looked at those moments and said, there's stuff happening here. This isn't just mindfulness. This isn't just beauty. This is something that is taking me further and is taking me deeper. And this is where we then start to think about uh, what it means to be a Christian out experiencing beauty in these kinds of things. And C.S. Lewis is very helpful in this. He says this. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire. But they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found. The echo of a tune that we have not heard. News from a country we have never visited. In other words, they're pointers. These moments that we're experiencing are meant to excite and fulfill and inspire us, but they're transitory. They will fade. They're meant to point us to something deeper and fuller and more real. And the Psalms tell us a lot about this in the context of creation. Remember, uh, the Psalms are written to people who lived before the curse of light pollution. Any of you who do uh, night photography like I do, uh, well, no doubt at some stage I have looked around and, and just thought, I wish I could find the master switch somewhere for NIE just for five minutes to turn the lights off so that I can see the stars properly. Um, they live in a context where there was no light pollution. They live in a context that in many ways brought them closer to the glory and majesty of creation. Uh, our cities are wonderful constructions. They're, they're, they're wonderful opportunities for us to display uh, the creativity of architecture. But sometimes they rob us of getting that really close connection with creation that the psalmist would have had. So just try and bear that in mind as we read these. These are people that have stood under the skies where the stars look like they are actually illuminating, where the light that they're walking by is not the light of a street lamp, but the lights of the stars themselves. And the psalmist says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. And night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they have no words, and no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. These beautiful experiences that we have out in creation are speaking to us if we have ears to hear. There is a message if we're open and receptive to hearing it. And what is that message? Whenever you stand at the Six Mile River in Ballyclare, no less, because you don't necessarily have to travel too far to see this, on one of the most amazing aurora displays that you have ever seen, when the sky is dancing in front of you, when the pillars of light stretch up almost as far as the eye can see into the sky. And when you're standing there, the next photograph that I took, while I was standing holding that pose, stand to stand still for 30 seconds, didn't a big shooting star fireball go right in front of my eyes as well as I was watching the whole thing? In those moments, the heavens are dancing. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The experience in that moment that the psalmist encourages us to have is an experience 
of worship. Now, let me show you a little bit of this. We'll see how time goes to see if I can show you how much of it will show. Um, but this is a little video I put together a couple of years ago of a, a year's worth of Aurora watching with me. Again, hands up, I didn't see earlier on how many of you have seen the Aurora. Right, not that many. How many of you have seen it in Northern Ireland? Okay, cool. Um, these are all from Northern Ireland again. Okay, I think we'll uh, stop that one there for time's sake. But to um, to stand, I've had a year, I've had 13 of those experiences in one year, was just absolutely incredible. Again, all of those in Northern Ireland. Uh, but one particular one that I, I want to share a few wee bits with you here was that one in St. Patrick's Day 2015. Any of you see that one? Okay, that, that's the kind of aurora that I thought you would only see if you went to the likes of Iceland. Um, I also have to say, I always tell Lorraine that I say this when I'm, I'm out, I have the most incredibly patient and long-suffering wife, right? Because she lets me go and do all of these crazy things very late off into the night. Um, this is even more a testament to her patience because I, I had just come back from a school trip to Rome for a few days and I knew the stats were really good. So I arrived in, said hello to everybody. Everybody then got tired and decided to go to bed. I had been up from about three o'clock that morning. They all went to bed and I said, well, sleep well, <laughs> I'm way out. And up the coast I went and I'm glad that I did because I saw the most incredible display. This is St. Patrick's Day. And, and I think for those of us who, who want to have eyes to see and ears to hear in this moment, it's very easy for us to make the transition between what was going on there and, and kind of some of the, the spiritual metaphors you might draw from it. Um, this was in the road between Carnlock and Glenarm. Uh, there had just been a big outburst, uh, and I was in, in Carnlock at the time, and there was too much light pollution, and I knew I had to get somewhere a little bit darker. So I drove back down towards Glenarm a little bit, knowing that I could go wild at any moment, pull into this, this lay-by at the side of the road, got out of the car, it was dark enough, set the camera up, and the sky went bananas. I'm talking about a, a dome, if you imagine a dome, 180 degrees above, to my left, to my right, Flashes of light, the whole sky writhing with an energy. Above me, before me, to my left, to my right, all around me on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> St. Patrick's Breastplate, anybody? Those moments for you just to realize this kind of dancing thing that went in the sky. And in those moments, your mind can kind of drift through to things like the Christmas story. So, no, I'm not suggesting that the angels in the Christmas story were the aurora, but you can just imagine what it must have been like for shepherds to stand under starry skies and for the sky above them just to explode into this glorious chorus of light and of energy and this big dance ahead of them. In fact, I was so excited, I was so enthusiastic that this wee guy came back. This was about half past 11 at night, right? So this guy comes by in a push bike. Not a really impressive racer, but a squeaky push bike because he, he came like this. He came closer. I, I was doing my classic Aurora jig, which is only visible at night when nobody else is looking. Uh, and he appeared and I said to him, go, look, 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 and, and this poor guy, right, looking from his point of view. So there's a random guy just standing at the side of the road, dancing around on his own. And he calls me over and starts to get a little bit enthusiastic. So he humors me for a few moments, looks at my camera, and then goes away. A little bit faster than he arrived. 
but those are moments, aren't they? Moments to share. And they're, they're kind of moments then for, as we'll think in the last little section about what we can do with that as an evangelistic opportunity. You know, those are moments for us to consider. These are times when you're not just seeing beauty, but you're experiencing it. There's something really deep and profound going on at that moment. And to, to stand at the likes of the Giants Causeway, which I do frequently late at night, completely on my own, with the Milky Way above. Again, the experience is absolutely incredible. Psalm 19 says this, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? There's one thing that doing that does very well for us is humble us. When I'm standing there on my own on on volcanic rocks, seeing the light streaming down from you know hundreds and, and thousands, millions of light years away, traveling to the earth in that moment. You're humbled by this. Your pretensions are are burst. And Psalm 19 reminds us of this. When we look at this and we think, who are we as human beings? And a good bit of humbling is no bad thing. But sometimes that can be taken a wee bit um, too far. I think um, this is a very famous image, not one of mine, I should, of course, isn't had, because it was taken by a Voyager spacecraft. Uh, you need to check the figure here. This is six billion kilometers away from the planet Earth. A very, very famous image called the pale blue dot. Carl Sagan, a very famous astronomer, suggested this photograph be taken just before Voyager left the solar system. He said, turn the camera back around and take a photograph of planet Earth. Can you see it? There it is. A tiny little dot, which isn't even a pixel of size. It's, it's a fraction of a pixel of size in this. Taken from six billion kilometers away. And Carl Sagan wrote something, I'm sure many of you have heard this, is a very, very famous quotation of what he said. Look at this dot, he said, that's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and our suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and card, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every super star, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled out by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become momentary masters of that fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely indistinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatred. Our posturing, says Carl Sagan, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. 
Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And yet we're not alone. And yet despite that humbling of standing under the stars, despite the fact that it can rightly humble us from our pretensions, we are not alone. We are a visited planet. We are a planet where God himself, who calls the stars by name, became one of us to do the very thing that Carl Sagan said that nobody would, to save us from ourselves. Psalm 19 goes on. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is humankind that you're mindful of us? And yet, you have made us. He has made us a little lower than the angels. And he's crowned us with glory and honor. He's made us rulers over the works of your hand and everything under your feet. And in that moment of humbling, when you stand beneath the stars, is a moment of a reminder that the God who calls each and every star by name, has not forgotten you. You're not some insignificant, minuscule fraction of a pixel on a moat of dust. You're created in the image of God who made this glory around. Isaiah says this, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. So why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and will not be faint. What a contrast, eh? We're all humbled by standing in front of majesty. But what does the Bible have to say about that moment, about that experience? The Bible says that when you stand in that moment, when you feel humbled, remind yourself that the God who calls every star out by name is the God who became one of us, who became incarnate, who stands with us, who has not left us alone and will not leave us alone. And in those moments when we're in the beauty of creation, those are the moments whenever the experience can become worship. When that moment when we are deeply and profoundly moved by what we're seeing can be places that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear can bring us to a place of worship of our creator God. Time is moving on, so I will... Move on just, I think, to the last little section. 
uh, we started off by experiencing the aesthetic, getting out and, and not just photographing something, but actually living in that moment, seeing what is it that moves you about this, of this being more than the mechanical, I'm learning how to find the biting point of, of the car here. This is going out and actually living in that moment. Then we thought a little bit about what it means then to worship through that, to see more than what Carl Sagan would see in this pale blue dot. Uh, and which brings me to the very last little section. We'll, we'll take about five minutes in this and then we'll have a little bit of time for uh, some questions, which is the apologetics of aesthetics. Um, so we go from, from that down to hopefully quite a, a kind of practical application here. Uh, and this is probably an appeal to those of you who are involved in photography. Uh, I said at the start that I think photography is, is a really growing hobby across Northern Ireland at the moment. Which means, I think, that gives us a tremendous opportunity. Um, I have done what I have completely expressly forbid my daughters to do, which is to meet up with people that I've met through social media. <laughs> Uh, and I've, I've managed to kind of meet a whole bunch of photographers through that, and some are absolutely great guys. Um, and the vast majority of them are either agnostics or atheists. Uh, and I don't know about you, but whenever you're involved in the church, I'm not into sports, hiking, I suppose, is my exercise, so I don't really always get much of an opportunity to meet a lot of non-Christians. I've had an amazing opportunity to meet a whole bunch of non-Christians through this, which means that what I'm doing is kind of trying to live out all of this in the midst of a whole bunch of agnostic and atheist friends, which is, when you think about it, a tremendous opportunity, isn't it? True story. Uh, about 18 months ago, one of those guys who's an outright atheist sent me a, a personal message and said, um, genuine question, Alistair. He said, why are so many landscape photographers in Northern Ireland Christians? They don't exactly get handed an opportunity like that very often, do you? Um, I'm absolutely one of these people that finds it very awkward to go up and initiate conversations in the way that people that have gift of evangelism stand at the front and talk about how easily they do it. I always sit there thinking, oh, that's really awkward for me. But I was handed this opportunity, and there's been an ongoing series of conversations that we've had off the back of that, but it really got me thinking, and I suppose it was the seeds for the start of, of a lot of what I'm, I've been trying to think about today. Why is it? Now, his theory was... <laughs> Uh, he says, I've got my own theory. He says, uh, I reckon that um, Christians don't tend to get drunk on Friday night, so they're more likely to get up on Saturday morning to go out and photograph the sunset. <laughs> okay, there may be some truth in that. But I was kind of thinking that beyond that, is there anything more? Can we say anything more about that? And I think we can. Um, because uh, I have had the opportunity with some of these friends to go to some of these amazing places, um, including this particular one. This is Sleeve Burner with a, a mate of mine that we went up um, kind of, I think, maybe about 18 months or so ago. Uh, now, as you can see, it was snow. Uh, we wanted the snow. I had checked the forecasts very carefully. I knew it would just be showers. It uh, wouldn't be a white-out blizzard for ours, so we, we, we were okay. But you do need to be careful when you're doing this kind of thing. So if you've ever been up Sleeve Burner, you'll recognize that last bit. It's the last really, really steep ascent. The top of the mountain was shrouded in mist. Um, and we set ourselves uh, a target. said, right, well, we need to come down off the top of the mountain at half past three. Or how far up we get, it doesn't matter. At half past three, we're coming down. We don't want to be coming down in the dark. So off we set up towards the top. As we got close to the top, this blizzard closed in, and we had to kind of huddle in together behind, beside this stone to pull the, my face mask up here and actually even my um, hat down over my eyes. The, the snow was just blowing everywhere. Ten minutes later, it cleared. We thought, right, we have 20 minutes to get to the top and turn and come back. And as we got towards the top, 
Those of you who have been up Burna will recognise those tours. Complete whiteout. Hiking through like a Scot of the Antarctic Territory, this isn't it? Uh, off we went towards the top. And just at the moment when we reached the top, what happened? The cloud just slightly lifted. And this mate of mine, who's a complete atheist, just stood there and went like this. Wouldn't look out of place in the big tent at night, would he? <laughs> Doing just this. And that moment, there's the camera in his hand, right? But he's experiencing that. That's not about the photograph. That's about the experience. And the feelings that you and I have had in those moments, he is having. He is having a transcendent experience, if you like. An experience that lifts him up out of himself. The, the journey, the battle up towards the top, the, the, kind of the, the banter and the crack of hiding in beside the, the boulder as the blizzard came down. And just the cloud lifting at exactly the right moment. And he lifted up his hands. He is having the most incredibly profound experience at that moment. And yet, from a non-Christian worldview, from a secular humanist worldview, what actually is happening there? In that experience that he's having, what is actually going on? Well, if you're true to what you, you say about being a secularist, a humanist, that the, the world is all there was and, and is never more will be, that there's no supernatural uh, outside of it, everything can be explained from within the system, there's no transcendence whatsoever, then what that is, I'm sorry to say, is an illusion. Okay, you may be having that experience. It's a biological misfiring. Why are we attracted to beauty? Because our genes are driving us to mates. We're attracted to beautiful things. It just misfires and we, we misplace that by enjoying beautiful sunsets. It's not really real. It's a misfiring. It's an illusion. Here's a famous Dawkins quotation. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no other good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. And yet... That feels so real. When you're experiencing that, those are the moments when it feels like you're really alive. When everything in, in the life has aligned the way that it should be. When you're feeling this moment of transcendence that those of us that are people of faith experience as moments of worship. Our non-Christian friends will be standing beside us experiencing the same thing. What do they do with that feeling? And what do you do when one of them turns around to you and says, why are so many Christian or my landscape photographers knowing they aren't Christians? Now, those are just a few thoughts maybe to get you thinking a little bit about how you could use those opportunities. I want to recommend a book to you by Alison McGrath uh, called uh, Mere Apologetics. Um, in this edition, it's page 113 where he has a section of about three or four pages where he talks precisely about that kind of thing. So if you're interested in exploring that from a Christian point of view, how can the beautiful, how can the aesthetic be an apologetic? I would encourage you and point you towards that direction.
Because that experience that we started off with, a, a photographer first and foremost is going out and experiencing the beauty, noticing and seeing those things. That we then who are people of faith are, are looking for ways to transfer that into worship of the God that provides meaning and significance and power and hope into all of this. That those messages that we've heard from Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins are not the final word. That there is something more. And then this apologetics that we can have as we're out uh, mixing with these folks. There will be opportunities. If you hike up into the mountains at all, you'll spend a couple of hours walking with them. There will be opportunities. So, was my friend right? (laughs) Well, I guess that's up to you to decide, as the Bible goes. (laughs) Um, But what I was hoping to do with you today was to kind of trans... uh, to get you to think a little bit more about how... That's mine, isn't it? So I'll uh, turn that off. There we go. Um, It's to think a little bit more about does Christianity have anything to say with this hobby? Um, so I'm hoping that you've got a few um, seeds planted, a few things to think about here. I think there's a lot to say. Uh, and if you are involved in photography at all, let me encourage you to see this as an opportunity, not only for your own spiritual development, to, to experience the worship of God through this, but also to see the evangelistic opportunity, not in some kind of forced way, but to get out there, just be alongside these people when they're having these experiences. The conversations will happen. We live in a world of glory and wonder and beauty. It's our wonderful privilege as Christians who are involved in the arts to try and capture something of that and share that with the world around us. Thank you so much for listening. We do maybe have a couple of minutes for questions if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask. Yes? Thank you, Alistair. That was brilliant. Spelling question for you. How do you spell called Sagan? How do you spell Sagan? Oh, how, yeah, S-A-G-A-N. S-A-G-A-N. I, I should say, actually, that I'm going to put a lot of resources that I've used here today onto uh, a blog on my website, that if you want to go, and a lot of the quotations here and things like that. Uh, it's just Alistair Hamble Photography. If you go and search for that, uh, you'll be able to get uh, a whole bunch of those. So some of the photographs and some of those quotations I'll put on there for you. Thank you. So, so I could get you right to it. yeah, yeah. yeah. And Google is very clever because there's a, there are 101 different ways of spelling Alistair. Google seems to recognize them all, so <laughs> you, you'll be able to find me, no problem. Yes? Uh, the, the, the landscape photography is beautiful and does inspire worship. What do you think of photographers who are maybe war photographers like Don McCullen or, or Robert Kappa or people that have concentrated on the fallen nature yeah. of creation, either in terms of man's inhumanity to man, or I'm thinking possibly of some photographers who now who, who see it as their role to document global warming and creation being affected, uh, if you want to say from a spiritual point of view, by our selfishness or, or by pollution or by man's sort of greed. Yeah. And another ty- there are other types of photography that you can use as well as landscape photography, just your ideas on that.
Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm going to repeat or summarise that a little bit of that for the, the recording. So the question's all about what you do with the not-so-beautiful aspects of the world around us, uh, whether it's man's inhumanity to man or issues of, of global warming and things like that. Yes, um, whenever I sat down with my blank page and thought about this, there were a whole bunch of different ways I could go. And actually, one of the areas that I did think a little bit about at the time was that broader concept of beauty. How do you find beauty or, or maybe aesthetic in a context that isn't so obviously beautiful as a landscape. Um, and I, uh, I thought, right, I didn't have time to, to deal with that, but I think there is absolutely a lot you can, you can say in that moment. And I think, you know, in terms of what you're trying to do uh, in those moments, um, I think if, you know, if I was trying to document, um, say, something about global warming or the impact of creation, I'm thinking, and I don't have it here, but a photograph that I took near uh, Carrickfergus, if you know that area, there's a place called Eden down in Carrickfergus, which is right beside the power station. So you can actually get a photograph there of the sign Eden. And there is, of course, a little street in there called the Garden of Eden. There's, you can get a sign of Eden with these big power station pylons coming right the way through it. And I think a statement like that um, is not the kind of photography that I generally do, um, but I think it's a very, very legitimate way to make a commentary on things like this, of kind of exploring um, the, the whole aspect of stewardship. Um, Sam talked about us being um, you know, stewards and um, being uh, given the opportunity to rule over creation does then mean that we do need to consider what are some of our responsibilities with that. And I think there is absolutely an opportunity for photography to come in here and to kind of juxtapose together uh, things that kind of are more jarring. I think a, a good photograph will have a tension to it. It'll not be static. Um, it can be a pleasing tension, but it can also be a kind of more jarring tension that makes you kind of react. And I think the same with war photography. It kind of reminds us that that other side of, of living on a world. We live in a, a world where God said it, he, he spoke, it came into being, and he saw it, and it was good. But it's fallen, it's broken, it's fractured. There's absolutely an opportunity there for us to kind of find a commentary in that. Um, I think then the challenge is, how do we see redemption in those moments? You know, how do we bring that aspect of the gospel in that into the brokenness, God is still there, and, and there is redemption and possibility of that? But a very good question, thank you. I always enjoy like the experience of photography, what you're talking about there. Uh, but there's always that impulse of photography we should have it to share yes. that with others. Yes. But then there comes that balance between the two, you know, <laughs> where instead of experiencing it, you can go the other way and you're sharing it more yep. for other people's enjoyment yep. than your own. So how do you find getting the balance right for that? Okay, well, I'll, I'll just... I'll to give you one example of how I do that, um, I share on social media, obviously, because I think part of um, what what our role to, to do as, as photographers is to actually to portray the other, other side of the question we're asking, there, which is the beauty that is there. That we, yes, we live in a broken, fractured, fallen world. People see that. But we live in a world that is riven with beauty and a world where creation does speak for us day and night. So I, I, you know, I feel that, that there is worth in, in kind of sharing that. But there is a fine line between sharing the overspill of your own personal experience and doing it primarily to get as many Facebook likes as you possibly can. So here's just a personal decision I've made. I don't enter any photographic competitions. Um, that's the, the kind of the stand that, that I take on this because a lot of my friends do, and that's fine. I, I don't in any way judge them for it. This is entirely a personal decision in my mind. 
but I'm not interested in going out and trying to get somebody else to kind of acknowledge and credit that. So that, that's how personally I've tried to guard it. Different things will work for different people, but I, I think, yeah, that's a whole, that was another week kind of in my mind map at the start, you know, the whole thing of identity and, and that balance between sharing and, and yet making sure that it's not done primarily just for the praise of other people. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but that's, that's personally how I deal with it. <coughs> Is there much preparation involved? Whenever, like, say, have you got a photograph in mind and you've got to spend several weeks getting the things together for it and yeah. reading up them? Um, yeah, S- sometimes there's that, sometimes I'll have... Which, which, which photograph took you the most time to prepare for? Ooh, ooh, that's a good question. Which took me the most time to prepare for? Right, well, we'll put it like this. The photo, it's, it, there is a bit of preparation, but in actual fact, to get the photograph you're after is not necessarily a preparation, but with a landscape photographer, one of the things you can never control is light. Uh, so there are certainly places that I've had to revisit on a number of occasions until I just wait until the light is, is right. Uh, and that can be weeks, that can be months. Um, there is a location that I have pegged out for Aurora photograph that nobody has shot from yet. And if you don't mind, <laughs> I'm giving that one to myself. I found it about 14 months ago. Uh, we, we live in a fallen world. That's my fallen nature coming through. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I could tell you, but it would rob you the joy of discovering it for yourself. <laughs> um, I've been waiting for uh, 14 months, and I'm still waiting. And um, I don't know how long I'll have to wait. But uh, oh, it's Northern Ireland, yeah. Uh, it's no, no, not the Faroe Islands, no. Uh, it's within driving distance of Ballyclare, I'll put it like that, but then, of course, all of Ireland is. <laughs> um, so, you know, it sometimes is about, I mean, the, the more serious point behind this is sometimes about going and finding, say, a nice composition that you think will work. But the other element of that, let me see if I can find this quickly. Um, the other element of that is just waiting for the light is right. Folks, we have gone on. If you need to go, I'll not be offended. Um, but if, if folks do have questions... Um, let me just unplug this a wee second so that I can show this to you if you're interested. But it, honestly, if you do need to go on, no worries. So this will, this will come up here hopefully in a wee second. Um, one, one of the things that I'm, I'm also quite interested in in photography is how you find a unique vision, right? Um, because you can go and kind of copy what a photograph you've seen before and there's no issues with that because it's your experience right which is back to the question you asked about you know who are you taking this for so go and take the classic view no problem uh, because it's your experience of the classic view there's no problem at all but one of the things that I, I like to see as a challenge with landscape photography is how can you bring a fresh vision how can you bring something that people haven't seen before and a lot of that comes with going to those familiar locations and then just walking around a wee bit Trudging around a wee bit further. So I had found this, obviously Dunluce Castle. Uh, I'd spotted this wall a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I thought, that would make a nice photograph. But I knew that what I needed was some of the side light. On a, on a, oh dear, what is that? One of the side light there that could light up the wall and with the lovely green grass and things like that. So I went down there um, and uh, I got into place and the sun went behind the clouds and the, the thing didn't light up. Um, I have that on my phone, which I can show you afterwards if you like. Of this without the light, and then the sun drop beneath the clouds, and phew, just lit up. Only in Ireland will they build a wall down a cliff. I know. 
Yeah, it does. Yeah, remarkable. So a, a lot of it, you know, it, it will come from kind of scoping out, um, and then if you're lucky uh, or fortunate, then the light can be right whenever you're there. Sometimes you have to to go back. Uh, I am very envious sometimes of those of you that do studio photography because you, you're in control of the light. <laughs> Uh, landscape photography, you're completely at the mercy of it. But I, I like to think that's part of the challenge that that's, makes it so worthwhile when the light comes right. Uh, it's just waiting for those. The other thing is um, just when you go to a place, not to rush into taking a photograph, not immediately to take the camera out, because if this is primarily about the experience, just stop and pause. What do you notice? What do you see? And this is back to where I started in terms of the, the, the rules, if you like, of photography. They, they give you a framework to help you to notice. This is like my daughter knowing that there is this thing called the biting point. Uh, so they're a framework to help you with that. Um, that's all they are. The, the, you know, don't be constrained by them. Be helped by them, supported by them. And then you just kind of try and notice, try and see things. So the line, the, the circle of that, the circle of that, I try to get those. And then it's the lights of the line there and the light of the, the line at the edge of, of the, the castle itself. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, observing these things and then... Uh, are they all natural colours, all the photos you've shown us? Have you used like, colour filters like the Aurora? Well, um, yes, I do process all of the photographs um, just simply because um, I think you have to. Um, I'm not interested in just taking a kind of flat photograph. Um, I, I want to take a photograph that, that has some kind of vibrancy to it. So that, that, to, to get into the very technical side of things, if you shoot with RAW, uh, a RAW format in your photograph contains a whole bunch of information, but RAW files very often come out really flat. So they're like the digital version of the film that you had to develop in the darkroom. Um, you then develop that and then process that in the darkroom. So the, the processing of the RAW file is the digital version of that, which is why it's called Lightroom allows you then to do that. Uh, although having said that, those, those photographs are, are uh, JPEGs. <laughs> I've said all that because I, I shoot with uh, Fuji. And if any of you use Fujis, uh, the guys from the media team at the back, I'm trying to convince them all week that the Fuji is the best camera to own. They have film simulations in them that um, replicate some of the old Fuji films. So this is a particular Fuji film simulation that has you know, got quite a, a, a vibrancy to it. But like with the Aurora, we saw which were awesome. Was that with newer experience? Right. Um, oh. Remind me later. Okay. Uh, what do you see when you actually stand in front of the Aurora? No, the camera sees more than the naked eye, yeah. at least in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, the colours are there. It's just our eyes are not designed to see colour at night. Uh, or I, you need a certain level of colour or a certain level of light before the cones in the eyes are activated to see that. Uh, although having said that, the, the best Aurora displays that I've seen do have colour in them, um, though they're not quite as vibrant as the, the camera would be. But it was still an amazing experience. It's incredible because those Aurora displays have an, a dynamism to them, they move, the pillars of light that just shoot up. I've described it like, um, almost like World War II searchlights. The first one that I saw at Dunluce was these pillars of light that just went up into the sky and just slowly and majestically drifted across. And when you see that kind of thing, and especially if you are a photographer, because you'll have your little screen there on your camera and you will see the colour. Um, 
Although, yeah, it, it is important when you go searching and hunting for the aurora to kind of manage those expectations. Um, from what I understand, I've never seen it in Iceland, but from what I understand in Iceland, it, you know, what you see in the camera is what you'll see with the naked eye. Uh, we're not quite far enough north of that, but it's still absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. It's important to say, too, you see the colour long before I see the colour. Different people will see the aurora in different ways. So I'll say, I see a green, and you know, I can see it starting, and I see nothing. <laughs> and then once it's actually developed quite a bit, and yeah. um, he'll be jumping around all excited, and only at that point when I start to see it. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I'll see the thing showing up, and I'll see it long, long before I do. Now maybe that's because he has adapted yeah. that. Different people will, will see the colours at different times, yeah. at different intensities. Yeah. So here I'll say there's nothing near, and I'll say, no, wait, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. And see it, there's green, and if you point and say, there's nothing there. <laughs> and then suddenly it just, it just, it bursts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you do see it with a lot of the naked eye, but not everybody sees it the same way. Yeah. You your eyes, and you're always out there. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. When were you seeing it in Ballyclare? You know, when when was it so far south that you could see it? Uh, well, you see, the, the thing is in Northern Ireland, the questions are about seeing the aurora in, in Northern Ireland. Um, you don't have to go to the north coast to see it um, because the difference in latitude between um, you know the north and, and down at New York, say, isn't great enough. You basically just need somewhere dark away from light pollution with a clear view north. Uh, and if the display is big enough and strong enough, you'll see it. Absolutely, you will. So just an ask, um, I've been to um, Castle uh, at, at various times, uh, and I'd like to get no. I've gone in with boats uh, and so on, but just wondering about getting. Do you have to ask permission to get down <laughs> fairly low, where you get down close to the water? Uh, okay. So the question is about getting. Yeah, the question is about getting down to shoot Dunluce from beside the sea. And I've just been asked while I'm being recorded that I ask permission. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, no, I th no, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. You just go down the steps beside Dunluce Castle and then you just go over the, the railings there and there's just a wee bit of a grassy slope. That, uh, yeah, there's only one occasion that I've gone on my backside down there. My daughter was there to see it and teased me mercilessly about it. But no, it's relatively easy to get down to the bottom, but that's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> would you, uh, one of the greatest landscape photographers would probably acknowledge was Ansel Adams, who yes. shot almost entirely in black and white. Yes. Do you use black and white? I very, very rarely. If I'm doing. Um, people photography I really like black and white for landscapes occasionally some of the photographs I took at the Faroes thanks hello folks um, some of the photographs I took at the Faroes um, I did use black and white for that because um, one particular waterfall we were shooting during the day and it just seemed to lend itself more towards that but most of the time I, I like colour um, you know I, I like the interplay of the colours I'm, I'm looking there for you know the the, uh, the blues and the greens and the vividness of that and then the wee touch of orange and just uh, it just appeals to me so it is a um, seductive colour isn't it yeah I mean Dunluce in black and white with a storm raging back oh totally yeah 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 Dunluce in black and white can be can be amazing yeah um it's it's probably a case that I haven't quite trained myself to do it properly um 
it, it's a different way of processing when you're looking at black and white and even a different way of shooting. You, you, you know, I think if you're doing black and white photography, you need to be absolutely not scared by blacks. I think the blacks really need to be black. You need to have a lovely kind of strong contrast image. Black and white can work really well because it removes distractions. Um, it, it just reveals light and dark and composition. Um, Colors can sometimes distract if it's not used well. Uh, and converting it to black and white just removes all of that and you're just left with this really strong composition. And I think then if you allow your darks to be really dark there and your lights to be really light, you can produce very dramatic images. Can you recommend uh, any resources, a starting point for somebody like me who's wanting to learn some of this? Uh, yeah, so I think it's, it, there are two things um, that are important for you to develop whenever you're learning. So the question is about how you, you develop and as you're starting off as a photographer. There's the um, artistry of it and then there's the artisanship. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, so the artisanship is all about learning the skills of how to use the camera. And then the artistry is how to use the camera well. Now the thing is, you can do that second bit, the artistry, whatever camera you've got. You know, if you've got a, a camera phone, you can train your eye to look compositionally to spot these things. And the camera phones these days are, are amazing. The things you can produce from them are stunning. Um, so whatever stage you're at, I, I would encourage you to get out and start to, to do that kind of thing. Start to train your eye. And that's back to where I was starting with all those kind of guidelines and rules. And I'll put those on on that blog and the website for you to have a look at. But that's about just noticing those things and where those principles can help you to spot things. So again, back to the, what I'm doing with my daughter at the moment, kind of explaining the, the concept of the biting point so that she knows what she's trying to do when she's using the, the pedals in the car. Uh, and you just develop that. Whatever camera you've got, you can develop that. Um, and then the other side of it is how you then will take the camera that you're using with that one. Um, uh, this is where Google is your friend, I guess. There's lots of opportunities, lots of online tutorials, a lot of the photography forums on Facebook. Um, you know, there'd be people there that'll help you out with it. There are camera clubs that can help you out with that as well. Um, and certainly developing that, the skill of being able to use your camera well. So let's say you, you know, something like that where there's a big dynamic range between the, the lights uh, from the sun and then the darkness down here to know how to use your camera well to kind of capture that is an important part of the creative process but seeing what you want to capture in the first place is foundational uh, and you can do that with, with whatever camera you've got well, so, Do you want to mention any um, websites you know for the or not websites but you know the Aurora Alerts I don't want to know how to yeah. Uh, there's going to be an Aurora alert. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Aurora stuff, they're, um, probably the, the best group that I would recommend is a Facebook, uh, a Facebook group called Aurora UK, which is a closed group, but those guys are, are amazing with that. Um, my website has a whole bunch of resources in the Aurora as well. I've kind of taught myself to forecast it, which turned out not to be quite as challenging as, as I thought at first. Um, and if you go to my website, I, every time I see Aurora, I try to blog about it um, and just about that, that side of things. Um, so if you're interested in finding out a wee bit more, you can find that there as well. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much uh, for coming. I'm sure you